is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about international business and globalization and the effects these have had on our life, our work and our travel over the last 50 years or so. In each program, we interview a person from another country or with strong connections to another country to get their unique perspective on these matters and how they have affected their life, their work and their business. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, sprinkling of business, and an overlay of personal experience both for me and from my interviews from around the world. Today, we will be talking to Bill Phillips, a man with a fascinating and varied career in training, HR and consultancy, principally in the UK, as well as in Europe, Latin America, and Southeast Asia. Uh, Bill also spent some time in, in Spain, pioneering modern horticultural growing systems in Almeria. And today, Bill works with business clients in the area of change management and performance. He's an international coach and trainer in the field of neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, and has developed an approach to creating collective future visions for organizations and teams called Future Basin. Delighted to have Bill join me today on the line. Welcome, Bill, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Thank you, Patrick. It's a delight, and thank you for inviting me. Very welcome. So uh, just to kick off, could you tell us a little bit, you know, high-level overview of your career to date? Uh, well, my original technical background, as you mentioned, was in horticulture. And um, my greatest claim to fame was working in Almeria for a couple of years in the late 1970s, uh, growing tomatoes and uh, and using modern growing systems, which hadn't really been experienced in that part of Spain before. Um, and then I moved into training parks and cemeteries workers back in England. Uh, and then from there, I moved into training and went to Manchester Airport and set up Manchester Airport Central Training Division. And while I was there, I actually did a, a master philosophy degree through research uh, in training and development. So that was really my contribution to the development of uh, Manchester Airport as a company. And then I left there and, and learned to, how to be a consultant and worked in a consulting company for about five years. And then I've really worked for myself mostly on and off uh, ever since then. And then your, your current activities, what, what kind of things are you doing now and who are you doing, the, who are you doing it for? Mostly, mostly coaching. Um, uh, I'm doing some facilitation work, uh, but mostly coaching. Um, and neurolinguistic programming has really enabled the quality of my coaching over the years. I've also trained many coaches since the early 90s when coaching was first conceived of, although uh, I was actually coaching people long before that, before they called it coaching. I didn't call it that because it didn't have a name. <laughs> so that was very interesting. And what was interesting for me was I, I was already coaching. And then when I learned NLP, the NLP made the quality of the relationships I built and the quality of my awareness and observation absolutely multiplied it tenfold. Yeah, I think NLP, what I've noticed about it, the powerful aspect of it, and I don't know whether this is the only thing, but you know, the thing that kind of attracts my attention is the way you can pragmatically and positively change a part of the state quite rapidly. Would you agree with that in terms of the power of it? I do. And in fact, these days, um, there are a group of people trained by John Grinder who refer to NLP as either classic code or new code. And what he means by that is what everyone, the whole world knows about NLP is really the original stuff that was generated by him and Richard Bandler during the 1970s, 1972 to 79. But after that, when they parted company and started working very separately, John looked back on what he'd achieved or what they'd achieved with NLP and recognised that a great deal of that, that had a number of flaws in it. And one of the things he recognised very clearly was the unconscious part of ourself is the part that does everything. 
whereas much of the the work in the early NLP was about changing behaviours, John realised actually what works is changing state. And so he started to develop an NLP which is focused on state changes. And so with new code NLP in particular, there are many ways of helping people shift states very quickly and very rapidly and applying those states to situations where they're challenged. And so their responses become much more... Um, and how, how, how do you go, so you, you, you find a person, say, in a, in a work setting, and they're in a, a, a habitual state or a, a trance, if you like, um, and um, it's unresourceful. How do you actually get them out of that? And I, and I know you can rapidly, but how, how does that work mechanically? Um, well, there are many ways. But for example, I was I was coaching a director in the NHS, in the, in the National Health Service in the UK, uh, a few years ago, and she'd just been made up as a director. And she said, one of the things I find really difficult is when I go to a meeting with all these other people who are much more experienced than me, she said, and I just kind of shrink. Can you help me deal with that situation? And we have a process in Ucode NLP, we call it the alphabet game. It's a chart where you have A, B, C, D, E, and through the alphabet on, on a flip chart page. And underneath each letter, you have an instruction with an L, a letter L, which means left hand, uh, a letter R, which means right hand, and a T, which means together. And what they do is they read the alphabet letters out loud and they move their hands up according to the L, the R, or the T. So that's quite challenging to do so many things at once. But what that does, by speaking it out loud and moving, their state changes. And in fact, they get to a point where their conscious mind can no longer handle the challenge. And it's almost like their unconscious takes over and they slip into a state of what you might call flow, a kind of high performance, high energy state. And what the coach is looking for is the moment when they're in that state and then they push them back into the context where they need that kind of state. And what they find is when they go into the real situation, all of a sudden things seem easy. Mm -hmm. um, so it's that's the typical of the kind of thing that we can do. It's interesting. Um, you mention also in your biography future basing and a methodology that you've developed um, mm. to help organizations and teams uh, formulate futures, collect the futures for themselves. Um, so, what is that and how does it work? Well, it, the future, the name future basing is a bit strange, but it's all about basing yourself in the future. And, and why not pick a future when you're, you have everything you want, you're successful? So, for example, if you're a team working on a project, you might be future-based at the end of the project, a successful outcome. Um, back in 1997, I was invited to work with the Secretary General and the International Red Cross in Geneva. And what they were doing, there were 50 of their people from around the world in the room, from national societies and so on. And what they wanted to do was create a vision of the Red Cross world at the end of 2010. So it's 97, so it's 13 years ahead. So I had 50 people in a room creating a vision for the worldwide Red Cross movement in the year 2010. And so we picked a date. They then, so I then said to this group of people, well, if that's the date and you're successful, what are you successful at? In what areas do you consider you're successful? And so they came up with, I think it was about 15 of these different categories. And one of the things I pointed out to them was, when you think about it, if these are your success criteria, then do you recognize this is what's important to you? These are your values in this context. And so they realized they just put a frame around what they were about to do. They framed their vision with their values. And what's powerful about that is if this is what's important to you, then it's important to you. And therefore, you're more likely to move towards it. The motivation is very powerful. 
And so then I broke them up into groups and they um, continued writing specific achievements under each of these 15 headings. And these were descriptions of what goes on, what we do, how things are, successes we've achieved and so on. But it's all written in the present tense as if it's real, the kind of language that we would use today if I'm telling you about, hey, listen, I've got to tell you about this great thing we do. Uh, and so the whole thing was described like that. The interesting thing is you got 50 people in a room and I gave them one hour. In fact, it was less than an hour. It was about 40 minutes. And in 40 minutes, they produced enough flip chart pages filled with, with these achievements to go all the way around a room which was 80 feet square and had walls with no windows in. So all the walls were covered with flip charts. Um, <laughs> And so that's how quickly you can do it with future basing. And the amazing thing is when you get all of the people that are involved in this in the room together and they create this vision, everyone writes what occurs to themselves and then they read everything and act it out in their mind's eye and then they answer the question, if you could have it exactly like that, would you take it without reservation? And when people have got that, and by the way, for writing these achievements, there are a specific set of rules which build in the motivation and one of the most important rules for writing these achievements is you write what you really want. And you don't limit it by what you think can or can't happen. Okay. Um, because there's a number of times in the past when teams and groups have written a vision which is completely impossible, but very exciting for them. And then in the meantime, the world changed in ways they could never have foreseen. And all of a sudden, what was impossible became possible. Yeah. And with uh, our world, we've all been reminded how quickly our world can change. It literally changed in days earlier earlier this year. And uh, our world has been described as being uh, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous, you know, the, the VUCA uh, acronym. So how do you how do you apply th this kind of approach in a world of that nature? Well, it's interesting. Many years ago, in the early days of me structuring Future Basin, probably about 92, 93, something like that, um, uh, a distribution director in a big brewing company said to me, Bill, he said, your method sounds very interesting. The only problem is if I were to make a vision, even for three months ahead, things are changing around here so damn fast, it would be obsolete before we finished. How do you deal with that? And in those days, I didn't have an answer. And I recognized later that you can do future basing so quickly. So for him and his team, there were about 15 people in his team. We could get them in a room and do a future. We could create a new vision in less than an hour. Um, the rest of the time would be dealt with mapping back what were the steps we must have taken to get here. But interestingly enough, that mapping process is only the reassurance for people in work. In real terms, with future basing, when you create this vision, you're already there. It kind of sucks you towards it somehow. Yeah, it's, uh, a, it, it's an interesting kind of psychological trick to kind of base yourself in the future and look back. It kind of changes like, a switch or something in your head, doesn't it? it has yeah, a exactly right. It, it changes the way you conceive of the future. And, and different from what most people do, which is planning ahead and forecasting, future basing really an ambition building process. So if you create a detailed ambition for yourself and describe it in enough detail that you can recognize it when you get it, that's a different way of working. So that's like the person who says, I want a red Ferrari and I don't want anything else. And they'll spend their life getting their red Ferrari mm -hmm. and, and so on. So, um, and this is what happens with future basing. So it's a different method. I used to describe it like being at the top of a flight of stairs here I am at the top, I'm successful. And of course, when you're at the top of the stairs and you look back down, because here, here was one question somebody asked me once was, um, 
Bill, with your technique and you're only pretending to remember, I mean, surely that's just all imagination, isn't it? And I said to him, listen, the very first hot air balloon was invented by a man who sat looking at the sparks going up the chimney in his fire and thought, my goodness, I wonder if I could trap that gas in a big bubble. I wonder how big the bubble would have to be to lift a man. <laughs> That's the kind of imagination that creates the world. We've got GPS now. We've got, <laughs> you know, uh, the internet and so on. All of these things were dreams. They, they all started in somebody's fiction. imagination, yeah. Yeah, and they were all science fiction when they started. Um, and And today, you know, these things are very ordinary to us. And so I said... If you imagine you're at the top of the stairs and you look back down the stairs, what do you see? You see the steps you landed on. Whereas if you're at the bottom of the stairs forecasting, I want to be up there, notice that what you see at the staircase, except for the bottom two or three steps, you see all the rises, all the obstacles you're going to have to get on the hurdles. And in fact, the way we think works like that too. And so if you start with success and remember what you must have done to get here, what you must have done becomes fairly obvious just like it would be in hindsight. So uh, the, the current um, crisis we're going through and the shock of COVID-19, how, how significant do you, do you think that is? Is it going to lead to fundamental change? Is it just going to accelerate some changes that were already underway? Or do you see it as, you know, there'll be a little bit of change here and there, we'll pretty much go back to the way we were before. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a kind of a human characteristic of homeostasis of drifting back to the status quo. Uh, and we have a tendency not only to do that, but we expect it. And if we expect it, it creates it. Our expectations create what happens. However, I think my sense is this, this crisis has shifted people's perceptions of the world, the way money works, the way communication works. And I think it's been enough of a shake-up, enough of a trauma for things not to settle back exactly as they were. Uh, in other words, they're going to settle back. They're going to fall down differently this time, like having thrown their cards up in the air and seeing how they come down. So I think there are going to be dramatic changes. That's that's my own personal opinion. I wouldn't pretend to be an expert on these things. Mm-hmm. But I find it hard to imagine, um, with the interest I have in human behaviour, that things will go back exactly because so many people have discovered new ways of doing things. And when you discover new things, your thinking won't go back into its old shape. Yeah, some people have discovered new ways of doing things that they like or that are better or more efficient or produce less stress and so on. And I guess many of those things will be retained. Yeah, well, indeed, for, uh, I can give you a tiny example of that. Was a client of mine who owns a training school in, in Uruguay uh, teaching NLP. They suddenly had to make a rapid change because they found all their brand new students who were just signing up were now cancelling. So they thought, oh, how do we get them back? And they started to do sessions online. They had no idea how to do that, but they just played with it. And he said the shock I had was we would normally have 20 people in a classroom. 15,000 people saw that broadcast. 15,000 people. <laughs> Our audience suddenly shifted to the whole of Latin America. Amazing, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he said, there's no way we're going to go back to what we did. <laughs> this has to be a new way of doing many of the things that we do incorporated with our, our established ways. And I think when you make a, um, a discovery like that in your business, going back to the way you've always done it is unlikely. Um, and then a, a related um, theme, and maybe something that some people say that, you know, COVID-19 was 
perhaps caused by it, but definitely was propagated quickly because of it, which is this whole idea of international globalization in, in the economy and in contacts with, between people. And we've been living through a wave since maybe the 70s or 80s of increasing globalization. So with uh, the pushback that we've seen in the last years with Trump and with Brexit and with US-China tension now with, with COVID, where do you think we are with that? And where do you think we might be headed? It seems to me this is a bit like a storm in in the politics of the world, in the world order, so to speak. Everything's being shaken up, almost like a mini earthquake, um, because I I get the sense this is globalisation in operation in that, you know, if this had been 20 years ago, this wouldn't have been a pandemic. It would have just been an, an epidemic in China and one or two other places. I don't think it would have been recognised and communicated so completely so that people in Ireland are locking themselves in the houses the same way as people in USA and so on. Uh, so I think that's that's one characteristic of globalisation. But I think th- it also means we're all in this together. Many more people will learn much more from this huge common experience. And things I don't think things can go back to the way they were. Mm-hmm. And I suspect the disruption will be great enough. I mean, somebody was saying to me the other day, she was studying astrology, and she said, there's actually a new wave. And she said, changes in the USA and its structure and the way it interacts with the world are in the charts, so to speak. Now, whether she's right or wrong, it's an interesting idea. And certainly when you look at the behaviour in the United States right now, that's an extreme form of stress-related behaviour, isn't it? You know, with these riots in the street. And so, so... In other words, feelings have grown and they've become much more super sensitive. And I think, I mean, one of the big discoveries that many people have made is they're connecting with people they haven't connected with for years online and they're enjoying it so much that they realise, actually, I don't have to be so disconnected. So that's one of the benefits, I think, of the globalisation of communication and connection, isn't it? Yeah, we've so, had, so I think, Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just about to say, I think globally we're learning something new here. Yeah, I was going to say that um, at the beginning of this on Friday evenings, a few of us from from school, and we graduated from secondary school in 1982, and we started uh, having a drink online on on Fridays. uh, (laughs) So now I'm meeting these people every Friday evening for a beer, and, you know, I haven't seen them for for years. And there's one guy is in uh, New Zealand, and he said it's absolutely amazing because he felt so far away from Ireland, and now every Friday he has a drink with, with the guys who talk about yeah. playing rugby and playing soccer <laughs> when we were kids. It's amazing. And if it wasn't for COVID, it never would have happened. Yeah, exactly. My, one of my sons was saying that when I was chatting with him the other day. He said, yeah, me and my pals in Brighton now, he's living in Tunbridge Wells, me and my pals in Brighton, we all meet now on a Friday night and we have a few beers. And, <laughs> and it sounds hilarious that it's yeah, a virtual true. meeting. It's not a real meeting, but they're having their beers. And, yeah. yeah. You mentioned you mentioned already that you worked in, in Spain for some time, and I know you've worked in, with people in Latin America and in uh, Southeast Asia and different parts of Europe and so on. So what would you say has impacted you most from working internationally with people from different different cultures and so on? Well, for me, it's a fascination. I mean, I, I guess my, my mission in life is about human connection and human behavior uh, because everything I've done for the last 30 years has been connected with that, really. So for me, there's been the fascination of the different ways that people perceive. Again, one of the benefits of globalisation and moving around, you get to know different cultures, you get to know different attitudes and and always making friends in those places where people would say, no, Bill, you can't do that here, you do this. 
And having learned all of those things, it, I think I have a richer view of human nature, not necessarily a richer view politically of the world. I don't understand those things, but this richer view of human nature. And one of the things I find most stimulating is working with people of many different nationalities. And I'm, it's not unusual for me to be in the room with people of 50 different countries. Uh, people I've coached and, and trained have been from at least at least 100 countries over the last 15 years. Uh, and people I coach from maybe 17 or 18 different countries. And they're people, many of whom don't speak my language. They speak their language or they speak some English. And I'm either working with them in Spanish or working with them through interpreters. And and for me, that richness of of the differences and the similarities between us is is precious. Yeah, it's very, um, it's very enriching, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it is. And outside of, of work and business, what kind of uh, things do you like to do in terms of hobbies, pastimes and so on? Well, these days I'm relearning to play the guitar. I used to be in a band when I was, what, 17 years old. I used to play like Hank Marvin. Um, I couldn't do that now. Uh, so I'm going to guitar school and learning, relearning to play the guitar, but learning so much more. So I love music and, and especially the guitar music. Um one of the things I liked most in Spain, of course, was the fabulous guitar playing, the, the sure, flamenco yeah. music. Um, so is that. Most of the rest of the time, I wouldn't say they're pastimes. I love studying. I love understanding new things. So I'm always buying books. Um, I actually teach something called photo reading, which is a very, very high-speed way of reading something and getting what you want in a fraction of the time you normally spend. Um and so I'm always researching. One of my friends said to me recently, Bill, don't you ever stop learning? And I said, why would I? <laughs> why would I? So I just recently discovered polyvagal theory and, uh, and how the vagus nerve works and the way our, our unconscious responses formulate. Uh, and of course, because of my interest in state changes with new code NLP that I've worked with, um, these ways of applying state changes to um, feeling safe and feeling well and functioning more effectively is, is fascinating to me. So that's my current sort of depth of study, if you like. It's a vagus nerve responsibility. You know, the, sometimes I have this sensation, I say I'm slightly anxious or on edge about something, but I'm not quite sure what it is. And it's kind of down here in the, in the, in the gut and kind of you get these kind of surges of it come up. And it's not until you stop and think about it that you say, ah, now I see what it is, and you do something about it. Is that the vagus nerve at work? Exactly. It's your autonomic nervous system. The vagus nerve controls the autonomic nervous system. It starts in the, in, in, in the back of the brain and it connects with it, all of your organs in your body. So when you get a sensation, it's always the organs that are producing that sensation, change mm. of chemistry, and it's the vagus nerve that's responsible for that communication. And the difference I'm discovering with the polyvagal theory is that everyone knows about, you know, the parasympathetic system, which helps you relax and feel safe and comfortable, and the sympathetic system, which puts you into fight or flight mode. But what this researcher, um, Stephen Porges, discovered was there's actually a third mode that everyone ignores, which is the freeze mode. And he said, this is actually the most ancient reptilian response. That, In other words, when you're faced with certain death, you collapse into paralysis. You know, your system shuts down. So the most extreme form of that would be somebody going into a coma. You go into a coma to save your life. Mm. It's like playing possum. But um, this is unconscious. It's out of your control. You can't do anything about it. Um, you just go into this kind of paralysis process. And when you recognize that, you can learn 
how to get back into connection. And he said, the absolute secret is connecting with another human being because we're designed to do that. And so they call it co-regulation. How do I connect with another human being and get myself back to being able to function and so on? And so you can learn by breathing, by changing the sound of your voice and and doing things. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. How can I help my clients with that stuff and myself too? (laughs) (laughs) And what have you you read? I know you've read a lot. You're probably reading a lot of stuff currently, but anything you would particularly recommend that has inspired you that you'd recommend to listeners? Well there's, well, there's one little book that I've actually bought and given to many people over the years, and it's called Stop Thinking, Start Living. And it was written by a very famous man called Richard Carlson, who wrote that famous book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is a book that says all of our suffering is created by what we think and the way we think. And that if you learn that for the moment you stop thinking, you can't suffer. You have to think to upset yourself. And he says the natural state of a human being is relaxed and pleasant. It's the parasympathetic response. Uh, he says you have to learn how to be scared and un- unhappy. Mm-hmm. And we're taught that very thoroughly the minute we go to school. Because you're told <laughs> to sit still. Yeah. Sitting still for children is, is death. You know, it's not supposed to happen. And uh, so it's a book about that. And it's, it's such a simple read and it's so incredibly powerful when you can realize that most of your anxieties come from what you're thinking. And if you can learn how to let go of a thought, you let go of the feelings that go with it. And so it's a brilliant system. If you begin to feel uncomfortable, you think, oh, I don't like this. I don't want to feel like this. What am I thinking? And you notice what the thought is. You say, you know what? I'm going to let that thought go. And when you let the thought go, the feelings go with it. And so you can actually train yourself to have the presence of mind, to notice what you're thinking when you feel bad and to let the thought go and feel okay. So that's Stop Thinking and Start Living. Stop Thinking, Start Living by Richard Carlson. Excellent. C-A-R-L-S-O-N. Excellent. So where can people find out more about you, more about your, your business, your services and your activities, you know, things like websites, social media and so on? Yeah, well, I have a LinkedIn profile. Um, it ends with Bill Phillips stroke NLP. Um, so I, I put a series of articles on LinkedIn. That's one of the ways I keep in touch with the world I'm in. Uh, really that transfers to facebook as well so i have a facebook page uh, my website is uh, bitnerphillips.com b-i-t-n-e-r phillips with two l's in the phillips by the way dot com um and that talks very much about re-engineering working relationships and uh, the trusted leader and those things i've done a series of studies and articles recently about the issue of trust and i think um People in corporations and organisations are beginning to recognise how central being able to trust one another is and getting anything done. It's what I've been working with ever since. Yeah. Lack, of, lack of trust works like a tax, doesn't it? it slows exactly. things down and makes exactly. things more inefficient. Yeah, well, it also makes people hurt. Uh, so people feel hurt and they, they feel scared of one another and they tend to retract and do their own thing when... That works against corporations, really, and corporations and the name of the game, I think. Yeah, excellent, Bill. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I could sit here talking to you all evening, but, um, you know, sadly we have to move on. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, keep well, keep safe, and look after yourselves and your family. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Patrick. It's been a delight. Thanks also to our listeners, and remember that if you would like to find out more about globalization, international business, and how we can help you to formulate and implement business strategies that deliver, please check out my blog and website on albalogistics.com and my book, 
international supply chain relationships, which can be purchased on Amazon and Google Books. This is Patrick Daly of Alba Consulting. Goodbye and keep well until the next time.